What's up, everybody, and welcome to another Boardroom Out of Office podcast. This is number 36, and here with my man, as always, Gianni. What's good? What's up? What's up, bro? Man, today we got solo climber, rock climber. man. Free solo. Free solos. But, you know, I mean, I didn't even, you know, I got the words wrong, but this guy's just like a one of one. Alex Honnold. Some people may know him from Free Solo, the, um, the documentary and the film that won the Oscar. So, um, episode number 36, I'm excited, man. I think Alex Bro, is here. I so am so excited. I feel like he's going to drop some gems. This dude can climb anything. Climb anything, man. So listen, without further ado, man, please welcome to the show, Alex, man. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm excited to have you on. Um, you know, Gianni and I have done, I think, 36 of these now, and we've got to talk to some of the most incredibly successful entrepreneurial people from all walks of life, but you have checked a box that clearly we haven't been able to check because there is nobody like you where the world knows you for rock climbing. I saw somewhere online that there's a part of your brain, tell me if I'm like wrong, where the sensor doesn't work like everyone else, so there's like a level of fear that you don't react to. Is that accurate? Uh, no, not exactly. Uh, <laughs> there's there's a little clip in the film Free Solo, uh, like a documentary about me climbing, where they show me getting a brain scan. And I think that a lot of people interpret that little clip as like, oh, his brain doesn't work right. But um, there's actually like a long form article written about it. Um, and I think the, the real takeaway is that my brain is basically, I mean, all the parts are there the same as anybody else's. <laughs> but uh, but it, that perhaps through, you know, 10 years of repeat exposure, I've sort of desensitized myself to certain types of stimulus. Because like in that particular test, I wasn't registering fear. But that means more that, you know, through 10 years of practice, I just don't experience fear from that level of stimulus anymore. Oh, that, no, that makes sense. If you think about it, like any other part of your body, like any athlete that's worked a part of their body, like, I assume you in some ways have become immune to certain levels of fear, right? Is that basically the same thing? Well, that was my takeaway. And obviously, you know, you would need like real scientific rigor to, to know for sure. Um, but I mean, yeah, to me, it intuitively makes sense that that after 10, 15 years of consistent practice that you're going to change a little bit. Um, so were, were you a fearless kid in that regard? No, not at all. I mean, I think that, you know, my mom would say that I was more adventurous than average, maybe. And I probably was like a little more, you know, thrill seeking than average. But um, but no, I mean, I was still afraid of lots of things. And, and that's kind of how I know that a lot of it is is practice. Because I remember being really afraid of a lot of things in climbing that now feel totally trivial to me. And so you're like, oh, obviously, 25 years later, you know, I'm scared of different things in climbing. Yeah. Well, I imagine like if you're jumping out of planes, people that jump out of planes hundreds and hundreds of times, something that like is the scariest possible thought for one of us. That's a great example because I, I have done my skydiving certification. So I technically know how to jump out of a plane by myself, but I find it very scary. I don't really like it. It's not even, I'm always uncomfortable. It's like jumping out of a plane is a perfect example of like, oh, I'm not really, yeah. into, you know, it's like, yeah, I can do it, but it's like not yep. fun, kind of scary. You should, you shouldn't have even had to get a certification to jump out of a plane by yourself. I mean, <laughs> it's just like, you obviously proved you, you, you could do something like that. No, but actually like all things in life, it turns out there's a lot more skill in that than you'd expect, you know, like body position and orientation and like making sure that you're, you're moving correctly through the air. You know, it's not just like jump out and hope for the best. It's like, you know, you have to, I don't yeah. know. I definitely want to jump out of a plane sometime, but I don't want to plan it. So it's got to be, I got to be in a, a spontaneous group. You well, can take me. I'll hang with you next time. Don't tell me and just take me. I, but the thing is, I don't even like it. It's like, I'm not going to take you because I think it sucks. All right. Well, then forget it. I'll never go. Um, yeah. So what age did you start climbing? Because like I, I see like I have two kids that are 11 and 7. Um, you know, rock climbing as a, as a kid is something that everybody finds fun. I'm sure on the West Coast, I grew up in New York, it's more accessible. Um, but when did you start realizing, like anyone else that's great at something, that what you were doing was different than your peers and when you couldn't stop doing it or you didn't want to stop doing it? Yeah, it was, so I started when I was 10 um, and I was just sort of lucky. I mean, and I started, you know, I'm now 35, so that's 25 years ago. And climbing gyms were much less common, much less prevalent in, in, in towns. I just happened to be lucky that there was a gym near where I lived in the suburbs and I was able to go in and try. But I think nowadays there's so many gyms that like, really you can start at any point, you know, you can just go and, and try it out for um, like where you are in New York. I, I guarantee that from wherever you're sitting within two miles of you, there's like a decent climbing gym. 
you know, it's like, yeah, they're, just, they're everywhere. You know, that is true. And, and to that, like, I think that naturally, even a kid that's really good at rock climbing, you know, there's always like when you're in elementary school and you got that, they test you in all your like basic athletic skills and you climb a rope and I never could climb the rope. And then there was a kid that like flew up the rope and he was a good athlete. But then in a year, like he stopped climbing rope. He maybe was just good at another sport. Mm-hmm. But was there like, did you, when did you realize like you didn't want to let go of that, that it wasn't just like a skill that you had, but did you feel like you were special at it at an early age? No, that's, yeah, that's interesting. So I never felt special at it. And actually I've never really had, uh, obvious physical gifts for climbing you know it's like obviously doing it for 25 years i've gotten pretty good at it but um but i wasn't like gifted from the get-go i couldn't just like do pull-ups from my fingertips or something but the main thing was that i always loved climbing i like i love going i love doing it all the time i think about it all the time i like to go and i think that you know if there's any kind of gift it's been that passion for it because ultimately that's what has gotten me through you know 25 years of consistent practice or sort of combining that that love of it and then also with sort of like an innate desire to be good at something that I do a lot, you know, like if you're going to do it, try to do it well, you know, like classic. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, yeah, it's, it's not, I never was like, Oh, I'm good at this. I should keep going. But it was more like, I also combined with the fact that I was kind of bad at everything else. You know, I was like bad at ball sports, <laughs> so I was like bad at hand-eye coordination. And so I was like, I really like doing this one thing and I'm good enough. You know, like I was, I was, I was fine. I was probably above average, but I like loved doing it. So it yeah. you know, just stuck with it. And did your parents like encourage you to just, were they the kind of supportive parents that whatever you were doing, they were going to support? Yeah, they were, they were pretty supportive. I mean, you know, my sister got into soccer, she kept playing soccer, you know, and then at a certain age, I was old enough to just bike to the climbing gym by myself. So my parents were totally fine with that. I would just, you know, it's just bike across the suburbs, go climb for a few hours, come home, do your homework. It's all like pretty, you know, I think my parents were glad that I at least had something that I was really passionate about. And yeah. realistically, it's pretty good for me, you know, like biking across town and working out for a few hours. It's like, there's certainly worse things that your teenage son could be doing, you know? Yeah. You must've been, so you were in, you were in great, like physical shape from that standpoint as a kid, like, did you run marathons and do all the other things or was it just laser yeah. focused? No, I, w- I would just bike a lot to get to and from the climbing gym. And then I was, um, I did some of the youth competitions and things and I did, you know, I got like second in nationals one year, but that's the thing is I wasn't like dominating competitions and I wasn't like clearly a talent in any way. Yeah, but I was just, you know, I was I was good, but not like amazing. How are you measuring your own success at that point? Were you just like trying to improve every day or were you trying to win these competitions? No, I was I, honestly as a kid, I wasn't even trying to improve necessarily. I was just like, I mean, I guess I was trying to improve, but it's just fun. You know, I mean, the thing about climbing is that there's a real like elemental movement to it. Like there's a real joy in the movement. And so it's not like I was training in this systematic way, but I just like love doing it. So I was just doing it all the time. But, but also 25 years ago in climbing, there was a, there was much less knowledge about training, much less, like it was a really different sport. Like, I don't know if, um, if you guys know, but climbing is going into the Olympics this summer and it's kind of like a big moment for climbing. And, you know, like basically the whole climbing world has changed a lot in the last 25 years. But like when I was a kid, it was way more niche, way more fringe. You know, you're just kind of like, I'm doing this crazy thing that nobody likes to do, but I think it's super fun, you know? Like nowadays, nowadays, some kids train like, like young Olympians, you know, they're like actually training as athletes. And so it's like a slightly different moment in the sport, but I sort of predated that, you know? Yeah. I mean, we'll get to this later, but you know, you're, you're probably a good part of the reason why, um, I would think climbing is in the Olympics. I mean, the spotlight you brought to the sport. Um, but back to when you were a kid and the competition, was was there someone that you were aspiring to be in that? Or did you think it was going to kind of run out and then you were going to go to college and major in something else? Or did, you know, because when you, I, I, I mentioned to you earlier before we got on that I heard you speak at Andreessen and Horowitz um, conference in LA and the way people, you were the hit of the conference, but that happens a lot at conferences like that, where like a very notable person speaks, you know, it's very compelling. But I, there was a part of the way you were speaking that I remember talking to someone, my buddy, Chris Lyons, who was relating it to like an entrepreneur with this certain drive and focus where it doesn't matter what anyone else says about what you're doing or your idea um, or how crazy you sound like, you probably do sound crazy because it's so unique and special. Was that feeling happening or did you think like, nah, I got to go to college eventually. I can't rock climb. 
Yeah, no, that's all. That's all interesting. I mean, there's a lot to unpack in there. But so I definitely felt like I had to go to college just because everyone in my family did. And I did go to UC Berkeley for a year. I was going to study engineering. But then while I was there, I was basically just climbing full time. And then I sort of had the opportunity. Well, and then my father died that year. And so I just sort of used that. And I also qualified for Youth Worlds that year. So I was kind of like, oh, I have this excuse to go to Europe to do this like international competition. And I have slightly less pressure to go to school. And it's just kind of like a good moment to like take a semester off. But so technically, I took a semester off to go climbing. And then just, you know, now it's been 15 years or whatever. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go back someday. But, you know, yeah. I'm still on break. But <laughs> You know, the main thing is just that I didn't have any particular passion for what I was studying, but I loved going climbing all the time. But but it was interesting because there was no climbing industry at that point. You know, there weren't really professional climbers. I, I didn't think that you could make a living that way, but I just knew that I wanted to do it all the time and sort of figured that the rest would like work itself out. You know, maybe eventually I'd become a climbing guide or something. Um, and then thankfully, you know, I managed to pick up sponsors and then eventually, you know, I became a professional climber. But really, like the industry has grown with me you know, and not yep. saying because of me, but just like, just kind of happy circumstance that it happens to be at the same time, you know? Yep. Well, and that, and that way, you know, to my question, and I do that a lot. I know I gave you this long ass question, which is a lot to unpack. And I don't want to take away from what I was saying about that kind of entrepreneurial spirit, because, you know, I also didn't finish school. Um, I haven't achieved the success in my field that you have in yours, but all, entrepreneurs that can't operate in the school system and then make that decision, make that jump. It's you know usually in an industry that doesn't exist, right? Or outside of maybe an athlete that's going early to play professional sports. If you are Mark Zuckerberg and you drop out of college to create a social network, um, that's unique. And I'm sure that the fact that you didn't go back to school and like you said, you did have an excuse. You said when your father passed, was that because I think people felt like it was okay. You wanted to get away and escape and climb. And that's what climbing was for you. Is that what you meant? No, no. What, what I meant was that like, I mean, my father was a professor. And so there was like the sort of unstated understanding that you have to graduate university. And then like his death, obviously like sort of opened this door. It's like, oh, is that really my choice? But then also his death, he left life insurance for my sister and I had to finish college. And so I put that life insurance into bonds. And then I suddenly had like 300 bucks a month to go live in a van and, and go climbing. And so, you know, it's, and so it, it was sort of like a safe way to like put the money aside, be like, I could go to college, but instead I'll go do this thing for a while. And then thankfully, as I did, or, or sort of fortuitously, as I did that thing, it just turned into being, being a yep. professional. So you rented, you rented that, you rented what, like a pickup truck, right? No, no, I, uh, I stole you- my mom's minivan for a little bit, but then I destroyed her minivan. And then eventually I bought myself like a slightly bigger cargo van and I lived out of that for uh, 10 years. And then now I have a slightly bigger van that I've lived out of for the last five or so. So you lived out of, you literally lived out of the van for, for seven years, yeah, 10 well, years. First I, had a, first I had a year with no car where I was living out of a tent with a bicycle and that was pretty scrappy. So then when I moved into the car, it was like a big step up. But, um, but, the, but that kind of thing is much more common in the climbing world than you might expect just because so much of climbing is based upon weather conditions and, and like, you know, basically where is good for climbing. So you just have to be super mobile. So it's really common for climbers to live out of trucks, live out of vans, things like that. When did you get your first sponsorship? And with that sponsorship, what, it, what does that relationship look like? Yeah. So let's see. I mean, it sort of happened organically a little bit like I had an experience in Yosemite where I climbed with a guy who was the West Coast sales rep for a certain climbing brand this equipment manufacturer named Black Diamond so he sort of had some discretionary budget where he like hooked me up with harnesses and and ropes or whatever like a little bit of equipment and then there's this big industry trade show called the outdoor retail trade show that happens once a year and so I went to that and sort of like hustled the different booths you know went to different companies and kind of like poked around and um and it all kind of like snowballs because like that sales rep was friends with another guy who's a friend of mine who happened to be friends with a company of this climbing shoe company. And then that guy gave me some free shoes and, you know, it all sort of like became a thing. Um, it, it's funny though, because so much of sponsorship, at least for climbers, isn't even about making money or getting the free product. It's about the validation of having a company tell you like you are good enough at what you do that we're willing to support you in some way. Because you know, realistically, a climbing shoe company giving you a bunch of shoes every year, it's like worth less than a grand, let's say in terms of total product. 
But having somebody tell you, you are doing something at a high enough level that we care about your performance. You're like, that means a lot, you know, and that, that like helps validate all the work that you put in. You know, you, so you answered my question in a lot of ways. Cause I was going to say that during that 10 year period, um, where you said you were living, you know, out of a 10 and then out of a van, it, like finding your purpose, right? When you're, you dropped out of college and you're climbing. Um, but finding your purpose when you're that age in general, when you want to do something, a lot of times it's with this dream. Like I, when I get there, when I get rich, when I make it, but there was no real industry for you. So did you start setting challenges on that okay. journey? Yeah, that's actually interesting. And, and I think that you'd have to sort of understand climbing culture pretty well to understand the purpose through it all. But, um, but the thing is, like in some ways purpose was the the easiest thing through that whole process because with climbing you always have like a harder thing to do you always have like a time to be like they're always clear goals and they're really obvious sort of concrete goals that you can work towards as much as you want like in, in some ways it's easier than other sports because like in in other sports you have to like win a championship or something and it depends upon your teammates and like whether or not you know and like salary cap and like all these weird things that are outside your control but with climbing there's just this rock wall and it's there all year and you can go work on it as much or as little as you want and you can come back to it as much as you want. And so it has these really clear objectives. So the, the goal setting part of climbing is actually in some ways the easiest thing you're like, and some, some goals are just so obvious, you know, they're like things in climbing history and culture. You're like, I want to do that cool thing. You're just trying to do cool things all the time. Is it a, is, is it a very like spiritual culture? Um, no, not even. I mean, at least for me, especially coming from a climbing gym background, it was more like an athletic sort of thing. Like I'm trying to achieve certain things, like climb certain grades, break certain times, you know, climb things in better style, do things in a day that I previously couldn't, you know, things like that. But it's like, there's just always, and, and also it's not like they're all huge goals. There are tons of like little incremental ones that you can always set for yourself where you're like, oh, it's springtime. So that means like this certain area will be in good condition. And they're like these six things that I want to do in that area. And those things will help me prepare for something that I want to do in the summertime. And you can like plan out a whole year of like little goals, little steps. It's like, it's actually an incredibly addictive process. You know, you can kind of like grind away year after year. Is it all like self-made or is there a regulation or, you know, rules in some way to the culture or what you guys have to abide by and do? It's, it's pretty much self-made and most climbing ethics are sort of self-policed, you know, like the community sort of like takes care of rules uh, as a as a community. Um, you know, there are climbing competitions, there are World Cups, things like that. But um, but that was never my focus, you know, even though I did some as, as a kid. But that's more just because, you know, it's, yeah. it's like playing a, like junior baseball or something. You're like, yeah, you got signed up for the team and everybody plays. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's like your passion. Yeah. But my, my passion was always having like adventures in the outdoors and so that lends your you know you wind up just doing all these other crazy things which is what i've you know become known for well whether you want to admit it or not free solo definitely has elevated climbing culture and so i just want to ask you are there other pivotal moments in the past 15 years in climbing besides el capital or there, I think there's a downward climb that your climb often gets comparison to just like other really important climbs in climbing in the climbing world. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there are tons of sort of iconic climbing moments. Um, I mean, starting in like the 1970s, there were a couple of climbs. Well, I mean, starting in the golden age in Yosemite, which is like fifties and sixties, sort of like the original ascent of El Cap was like widely covered by the news at the time. Um, you know, the first time that El Cap was climbed in the day was widely covered, uh, you know, by, by news at, at that time. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of a woman named Lynn Hill, but she was like a trailblazing uh, climber from the honest kind of late 70s all the way through the 90s. But she was the first woman to free climb El Cap in a day. And, and that means free climb with a rope, not not free solo. But um, but at the time, she climbed a route that was like one of the hardest things in the world. Nobody thought it could be done. Tons of people had tried and, and she achieved it. And there are all these iconic images of her with like flowing blonde hair climbing this outrageous big wall, it's like totally amazing. I mean, those are the kinds of images that were up in climbing gyms for like my entire life. You grow up looking at that being like, this is the aspiration. So there are definitely a lot of iconic ascents in climbing that help inspire, you know, the next generation. So you mentioned this woman, Lynn Hill. So is it a pretty diverse group of uh, within the climbing community, men and women? Yeah, I mean... More and more so, for sure. I think that as climbing gyms have spread, 
it basically allows, you know, almost anybody to try climbing. But historically, you know, like 50s and 60s, climbing was coming more from sort of like the environmental movement almost. So it was basically just like relatively, at least like middle class and up white men who were like playing in the mountains. Yeah. You know, very much like leisure, leisure classy type stuff. But, you know, that has been steadily changing over time. And so, I mean, we'll kind of see where it goes. I mean, now climbing is pretty split 50 50 men and women. Um, and, you, and you see, like, you know, anybody can try it. And- yeah. So why, like, the rope climbing from, like, a safety perspective, I'm sure, like, your friends and your mom weren't on you. But when you start making, like, the decision to climb without a rope, when was that in your process of, like, all these different benchmarks? At what point in that 10-year journey? Up until, I guess, 2007. Yeah. So, so there was never like a moment where I was like, okay, now I'm going to climb ropeless. It was always sort of like this, this like extra spice that you could sprinkle on, you know, and, and especially when I grew up climbing 25 years ago, it was a much more normal part of the climbing experience. Like sort of anybody who climbed outside would be comfortable free soloing in some small extent, because the thing is, is like, I think when most people think about free soloing, they imagine like El Cap from the film Free Solo, they imagine like some crazy vertical rock wall. But the better way to think of it is that when you're hiking in the mountains, like when you're hiking to go to find a climbing area, often you have to like scramble over little rock buttresses and things and like scramble over hillsides to get to where you're trying to go. And there's like this total spectrum of like, oh, I'm scrambling. And now the scrambling gets pretty steep. And you're like, oh, I'm still scrambling. And I have my backpack on. It feels fine. But then eventually you're like, is this not considered soloing? Because there are plenty of scrambles where if you fall off, you're going to die. You know, you're going to tumble down the hillside and that's it. And so there's like this gradient basically between I'm walking and I'm rock climbing a vertical wall. And at least historically, all climbers had some point on that gradient where they decided like, this is the limit of my comfort and beyond that, I'm going to use a rope. The thing is nowadays, because you start climbing in the gym, nobody ever has to really think about that whole gradient because they just drive their car walking to the gym and it's all safe, you know, Yeah. which, which is fine. But it's just that like, you know, I don't know if it's the right way to think of it as like, when did you start free soloing? Because you're like, well, you no, know, I get it. Mountains all the time. It's like, you're yeah. always doing a little bit. Yeah. But, but I mean, but the thing is, is like doing it in a gym is different than doing it in real life. I'm from in a many ways, I'm sure like in real life, meaning on a real rock, but the like, side of it where you get this adrenaline rush where you know like the fall could mean death right once you've gone up that curve a bit where you know if you fall backwards what could happen imminently that starts to have to be an adrenaline rush I would assume right that's something different altogether because skydivers wear parachutes still no but that's the thing is it's never for the adrenaline rush like the real sort of thrill of climbing is to control the adrenaline rush basically to take something that should be really scary and sort of through preparation and training and whatever else make it not feel scary anymore. So like the, the joy of it is to know that it should have been scary, but it wasn't. That makes a, uh, now that's incredible because that goes to, you know, the analytics and the preparation behind what I watched when, um, you know, when I watched your documentary, or I actually saw the making of the documentary that ESPN did, which was incredible also. Um, I was about to ask you if you saw it, but I assume you saw it, obviously, right? Yeah. yeah it, it, it was a New York Times thing, wasn't it? It was like a- Oh, minute. yes. Yes, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. yeah totally. So yeah. the preparation around it is very much like any business, you know, and, and when you walk into that boardroom or, if, you know, for Kevin Durant, if he shows up at that game, the work that he did and the work that she did in the boardroom, whoever it may be, that feeling of like, I got this no matter what, as daunting as it feels, do you truly then gar- start to go up fearless- because of that? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, you know, when you talk about Kevin Durant walking into a game, you would assume that when he's walking into a championship game, he's not like super nervous and butterflies and like, oh, this is such adrenaline. He should be relatively calm and relaxed and prepared and like ready to do his best. You know, obviously he'll have some excitement of like, oh, this, you know, this is a moment, but it's like, he should be pretty poised, I assume, be like, this is what yeah. I'm life for and I'm ready to do my best. Yeah. You know? But if, but if somebody, has a game seven and, and shows up and shoots four for 14, four for 24 from the field, they, they could play in another game seven. You don't have that equivalent. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, that's true. But on the other hand, I mean, like the sports analogies work to a point, but 
the thing about climbing is you get to choose your day. So like, imagine if you're choosing your game seven for when you feel the very best and the most prepared that you're ever going to feel. I yeah. mean, I think the bummer of, of, you know, games like, like basketball is that you have to do it when the calendar tells you, you know, like when the ref says play, you play and you're like, but what if you don't want to play? Like, what if you don't feel that good? Like, what if you had food poisoning the night before? You know, it's like, I think that's the challenge of, of other sorts of games. The thing with climbing though, is that you wait until you feel perfect and then you go and you perform at your absolute limit on the day that you want. Yeah. No, I, I get that. And that, that is a very good point because if you feel anything that's off in the morning, whether, you know, mm-hmm. how you woke up feeling just like, I don't know if you're superstitious, um, but if something you're not, that's good. Um, if something seems off though, you can pull the plug. Have you done that before many times? Yeah. I mean, if you've seen the film free solo, uh, I have an attempt on, on El Cap where I bail basically straight away because I wasn't really feeling it. Conditions were quite right. And, you know, it just wasn't, it just wasn't my day. Yeah. I think that, you know, the real, the real challenge with free soloing is knowing when it's your day. Yeah. No, that's, that's definitely a privilege to have in your profession for sure. So imagine, imagine if like the Super Bowl, you know, one of the players could be like, you know what, let's play tomorrow because I didn't get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's no. a good point. And so four t- about 14 years ago, uh, I think because it said in 2007 around April Fool's Day, because some people thought it was a joke. You had this like moment, right, where the world started to, well, the, the climbing world started to know who you were. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. It was April Fool's Day, I think in 2008. I uh, sold this route in called Moonlight Butters in Zion National Park. It's like this really striking sort of thousand foot sandstone wall. And at the time, it was quite a bit harder than anything that had ever been free solo, basically. And so it was kind of like my first step onto the scene. Like up to then, I had repeated a handful of the hardest things that people had done before. Um, I'd sort of like matched the previous generation. But doing Moonlight was sort of the first step into like, okay, this is now a different time and like different standards are, are yeah. being did you, so did that mean different like sponsorship deals and money and a, yeah. did it start to turn into a career and were you not living in your car at that point? Oh no, I was living in the car at that point for sure. But <laughs> uh, I mean, and I continued to live in the car all the way through 2016 or 17 or something. I mean, I was living in the car for uh, 12 or 14 years or something, but um, no, when I sold a moonlight, uh, it definitely, made a turn in, in my sponsorship, sort of my personal livelihood, all, all that was like a big step up. Like the year before, uh, the North Face had sponsored me sort of as like a B team athlete. So they gave me a like travel budget, which is basically just gas money, which was great. I was like, Oh my God, I'm getting paid to drive around and climb. Like I'm so psyched. Yeah. But then the next year I was now on the like global, you know, on the A team and I was actually like making a salary and everything, you know, I'll be a, a very small one at the time because, you know, I mean, you guys are used to talking to NBA players and stuff like the The scale for the climbing world is uh, vastly smaller than, yes. than sports. But no, still, I, I mean, you're making a living doing what you love to do. So it's it's still pretty great. Yeah. I mean, I would. what you want at that point in your life is to be in a car all day long climbing. Right. So you, what you need from a sponsor like you said, is validation and a great gesture at that point. But then I saw you had a real deal at some point with Cliff Bar that then went awry because of something and them turning their back kind of on the culture of it. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty classic. Um, Cliff Bar dropped all their athletes who did sort of dangerous things like uh, free soloing or base jumping or, um, but that was, I mean, like there were no hard things. I totally understood that. And actually from a personal perspective, it was amazing because I just signed a real contract with them, like a three-year contract. And so they paid out my three-year contract. And then the athlete manager felt so bad about it all that he kept giving me free product the whole time. And so I was like, oh, I just got paid for three years of work and I still get all the free stuff and I don't have to do anything. I was like, I, you know, I hope all my sponsors drop me. I was like, this yeah. is awesome. Yeah, you know, no. like, this isn't so bad. No, no, no. I, I, by the way, I know one of those too. That, that, you know, unless it's a rare sponsor that you, you know, that for, for whatever reason, an athlete couldn't live without those rare occurrences where that happens isn't always such a bad thing. Yeah. Um, yeah totally. So, so that wasn't like a controversial thing at all with Cliff Bart. Well, I mean, I think the climbing community sort of panned them, you know, like I think that uh, people made fun of them quite a bit for it. And it was like kind of silly mostly because they had just sponsored this film called Valley Uprising, which sort of depicts the history of climbing in Yosemite. It's a great film. And so there were a bunch of Cliff Bar athletes in the film. Cliff Bar had like helped pay for the film. And then as soon as the owner of Cliff 
saw the film, he was like, wait, what are these guys doing? And then fired everybody. And you're kind of like, dude, they just made a whole freaking film about it that you guys paid for. <laughs> it's like, don't, you know, don't you have yeah. any idea what's going on? So like, yeah. I mean, obviously there was a lot of criticism, um, but not by me, you know, it's like, yeah. I mean, it's a private company, obviously he can do whatever he wants. Like it's totally fine. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. I mean, the name of the company's Cliff Bar, and it's yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's like <laughs> named after his dad. I'm like, you know, he can do whatever he wants. Like, it's it doesn't bother yeah. me. But it is a little bit silly because it's like he's not only paying the athletes, he's also paying for the film. You know, it's kind of <laughs> like, uh, you know, you're yeah. Like, Come on. You probably just took the money, started eating like kind bars, and we're like, whatever. I'm gonna go climbing. Fuck it, it's over. Yeah, actually, now it's kind of better. The thing about bar sponsors like that or food sponsors is that no matter who you're sponsored by eventually you get sick of it because if you eat too many bars like every time you go adventure and you eat the same thing it's kind of better just to spend money and buy different stuff all the time yeah yeah so that's, that's what we do now that's a good point yeah. um was there was there ever a point where like your mom or someone you were dating or girlfriend um and i remember i saw in the documentary that you went on to marry um that was like come on man alex like it's too scary for us can you, when are you going to chill out? Like anyone, someone that would be a boxer or something. And I know I'm not comparing it again because you grew up into this, but that conversation had to have happened, I would assume. It hasn't, it hasn't totally happened. I mean, there definitely have been times where people are like, oh, actually, mostly, <laughs> oh. Uh, mostly it comes from peers, like climbers, uh, you know, like partners that I have, like people that I climb with a lot who like deeply understand what I'm doing and how hard some of this stuff is. And, you know, it's, it's guys like that. They're kind of like, are you sure? Like that seems kind of sketchy. Like, you know, do you really want to do that? But for the most part, my family has always kind of just trusted my judgment. I mean, because ultimately I want to live more than anybody else wants me to live. You know what I mean? Like I'm doing my very best, you know, someone else like nagging me, isn't really going to change me doing my best. But I think that, um, that some of my friends who have like a deep understanding of the risks and, and sort of strategy involved, sometimes they can sort of second get, you know, like, are you sure? Yeah. You know, but, but it's really important to have those conversations anyway, though, because like, obviously I want to be sure, you know, like I don't want to like rush into anything either. So like, I don't yeah. really mind friends second guessing me because I should feel confident enough that, you know, yeah. anybody can guessing is, is fine. Can you tell me a bit about the strategy behind free soloing? Cause I know you see rock formations and mountains different from anybody else. So it's like, what is that? factor like oh this this mountain is free soloable this mountain is not climbable like what are, what are you what are you looking for yeah so so there are a couple of things i mean so most of the time you're soloing routes that have already been climbed before so you can actually like look at a map let's call the topo like look at a sort of path that you're taking up the wall and then climbing is broken into difficulty you know by grades and things and so you kind of look at the map and see how hard it's supposed to be and get a sense of like whether or not you can comfortably do that and so the key thing is to have a good understanding of what your own limitations are, like how hard can you climb? And, and then I think that's a real danger with soloing is that it's easy to, it's easy to want to do something cool, but it's like, can you actually do that thing? You know, it's like one thing to be like, oh yeah, I'll just go up there and I'll just do my best. But you're like, you know, can you actually do it? You're like, ah, you know, you have to be pretty honest with yourself because once you get up there, you're like, oh, it turns out it's really scary if you're not prepared and if it's too hard. But, uh, and then, you know, for those rare times that you're climbing something that no one has ever climbed before, then it really is just pure judgment. You just have to look at the wall and sort of make an assessment. And, and you know, and it's all based on experience, like things that you've climbed that are similar, rock types that you've you've experienced. Um, it's all just improving, basically. And the other key thing with free soloing is that you have to be good at down climbing. Like you basically have to be good at, at retreating because, you know, you have to stay well within your comfort zone. So you frequently go up a ways, decide that something is like too loose or too friable or like in some way too dangerous. And then you have to feel comfortable just going back down and walking away and being like, oh, I tried my best, didn't work out. That's fine. You know, can you walk down literally every mountain you climb up or not really? Uh, yeah, you can mostly down climb anything uh, that you climb up. I mean, like even something like El Cap, you know, like in the film Free Solo, I'm pretty sure I could climb down that if I absolutely had to. Not to say that I could solo down it safely, but like, you know, if someone had a gun in my head, I'm pretty sure I could climb all the way back down it and, and, and make it, you know? Yeah. It's so funny. Like having a gun to your head would scare you. Well, I mean, under <laughs> your head, you're definitely going to die, but down climbing, it's like, there's a pretty good chance I'll live. I know. I'm just kidding. You know, the analogy you made now has cleared it all up for me because I was thinking about this. When you get in a plane with somebody, just like think about a pilot, right? Like 
it's as dangerous for one of us, Gianni, you and I, who don't know how to fly a plane, to just go up into an airplane and try to fly it the same way like we couldn't fly, we couldn't climb the mountain, but the prep that he has is no different than the prep that like a pilot has had to go fly a plane. Um, sort of. or, it, or like, yeah, think like a race car driver, you know, where it's like, yeah. even, even, you know, like I have a rough understanding of how to drive, but if I had to drive a race car, it'd be horrifying. Cause like, you know, I can't go that fast. I don't have that good of reaction times. Like I have no idea how the car works. It's like, yeah. I mean, if you're trying to do something difficult, you need the specialized training. Like, yep. So what was the, the, the motivation? And, and I know like for you, this is probably something that you talk about now every day. It's why I waited so long to get into the documentary and, and the free solo, because I don't want to make it a, the biggest part of this interview by any means. You probably do talk about it once a day, but I don't remember in the doc or the making of the doc, the um, like motivation originally to make the documentary while you were climbing, what side that came from? Um, the filmmakers approached me about doing a film. They approached me about doing a feature. And uh, and it just so happened that I was personally thinking about El Cap, like at that moment, basically. And so the two really went hand in hand because it was actually easier for me to do the climb by having a film crew around, basically by having sort of like built in support and like peers to work on it with. Because, you know, it, it might not be obvious, but for something like El Cap, there's a tremendous amount of work involved, just like hiking the ropes to the summit of the wall and rappelling down the face and then hauling the ropes back up and putting stuff away. There's like a lot of effort that's required. And so by having the film crew involved, it helped me to sort of distribute that effort amongst several of my friends. And I didn't have to like do it all myself. So it kind of made it more likely for me to actually be able to do this big goal that I had by including other people to sort of help me with it. So, it was, you know, sometimes it just makes sense to have a team. So what was the history of that mountain leading up to like you kind of eyeing that as your target for this goal? Oh, I mean, you know, I kind of mentioned a minute ago, but El Cap has been at the center of climbing mythology basically for 70 years now. So, you know, I'd grown up thinking about El Cap. And, and at this point, I think I've climbed El Cap 100 times with the rope. You know, it's like it's a very important mountain for climbers. Like people come from all over the world. You know, it was the biggest and most difficult thing uh, in the world when it was first climbed. Uh, when it was first climbed in a day, it was a huge milestone for climbing. It's like basically like all kinds of records have been set on El Cap over the years. And so it was always this super obvious goal. I mean, I'm also from Sacramento, which is a few hours away. And so on a personal level, I'm like, this is like my home mountain. And it also happens to be a global destination for one of the most you know iconic climbing things in the world. So um, post the doc, the Oscar, post Capitan. How do you say it? El Capitan? Because Gianni, yeah. you said Capital, right? Yeah. Oh, Capitan. And it is, yeah. Yeah, El Capitan. It's Capitan. Like Cap Captain. You said it with this. He said it with such a dope accent, though, that I, I just, I liked it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I just call it El Cap. El Cap. Yeah, let's stay with El Cap. Um, so after all that, is it different did it feel different did it start to like i mean again i can relate to athletes that have talked to me or i've seen them quoted saying about how the fun has been gone we did a doc on stefan marbury the basketball player and there was like this quote when he was 14 or 15 where he was like man basketball used to be fun you know because in the that world the business starts so early was there something after that oscar that like felt different about the industry or how you felt within the culture of it all no, I don't think so. I, I love climbing. I think that, uh, I mean, but I can see how there's a big difference in this regard between climbing and other sports because other sports, like, and, and this is actually, I think one of the coolest things about climbing is that like other sports, when you get to an elite level, you basically become separated from the game that everyone else plays. Like, you know, if you're an NFL player, you only play in NFL games against other elite players and only when you're on display and like only when other people tell you to, you know what I mean? You're never just like playing the game because you love the game. But the thing with climbing is like, when I go climbing, I just wander out into the woods wherever I want to go and like climb whatever cliff inspires me. Or if I want to go to the gym and like train, I just go to the same gym that everybody else goes to. So like yesterday, my wife and I went to the climbing gym and we're just like climbing with anybody else who wants to climb. It's like much more of a homogenous community in a way. It's like everybody's there doing the same thing. They're all just climbers, you know, but I could see how it would kind of drain you if, if you're like in the NBA and you're not just like playing hoops with your friends anymore, like you're basically training to be on display for the masses, you know, a couple times a week or whatever. Yeah. They're like, I mean, that, it seems like that would take the joy out of it a little bit. So there was no, like, no one thought you went Hollywood. 
No, no. Well, also, I mean, to be fair, I didn't go Hollywood. You know I mean, like, dude, in the last week, like a freaking week ago, I fell down this mountain. I don't know if you can tell, but I have like my face is kind of messed up and I thought I maybe broke my nose, but um, the scabs all just kind of came off this morning in the shower. But I basically like broke this handhold and like fell down this mountainside like a week ago and got kind of messed up and like kind of banged up. But then uh, I already had this plan to go ski mountaineering, like to climb Mount Whitney, which is like the highest peak in the lower 48. And so like a friend and I did this like 100 and 100 mile bike ride to the mountain, climbed the mountain, skied the mountain. And so like my lips are all chapped. I'm like sunburned. My face is all busted. I'm kind of like, I don't think that's going Hollywood. You know what I mean? Like that's still like as core climbing as you can like. Yeah. You know, I'm still doing all the stuff that I normally do and I'm getting worked, you know? That's insane what you just said you did. I and know, right? He rode the bike up the mountain with the skis on your back and then skied. You left the bike on the top, I'm guessing, and then skied No, he down. didn't bike up the mountain. He biked to the mountain, climbed the mountain with the skis, and then skied down. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever been to Death Valley, but Badwater, which is the lowest point in, in the U.S., happens to be 130 miles from Mount Whitney, which is the highest point in the U.S., so it's this pretty cool, like low to high thing where you can basically bike over these two mountain ranges to get to Mount Whitney, and then you climb the mountain. So it's like, oh it's kind God. of like an obvious challenge where you go from the lowest point to the highest point. Turns yeah. out that it's really freaking far and it's totally heinous. And it was 97 degrees. We biked, you know, it's like, it, uh, it was all very difficult. But the point is being that, I mean, and I think that's one of the things with climbing is that fundamentally you're always just out in nature getting worked the way any human does when, when they're out in nature. And so, you know, I think with other sports, like you wind up isolated in a way, you know, it's like you wind up only playing against other elite players, like in a little bubble, you know, but, but like with climbers, you're just always out in the world getting just destroyed by nature. <laughs> you're kind of like, well, you know, it keeps yeah. you in your place for sure. That is true. And it's like, and you have an endless, endless canvas, like to, yeah. uh, to build from. And by the way, I didn't, I didn't think you went Hollywood. I'm saying there's no, hate, no. there's haters out there. I mean, you, you can't know everyone in your community. So some people may be like, man, Alex gets all the shine. Like that's just what no, I mean. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure I get criticism for various things. I'm totally unstressed about it because like, I personally know that I could not be doing more, you yeah. know, like I'm, you know, but, but at the same time, you know, I'm married. I'm like, I have a house. I'm like paying for my house. You know, it's like, obviously I have to work as well. And I mean, I have a foundation. I'm giving away like a third of my income to the foundation. It's like, you know, I have stuff going on and I like to support that kind of stuff. But I'm like climbing about, actually, I think it's fair to say I'm climbing more than almost anybody else can climb, you know? So I'm kind of yeah. like, I, I think it's freaking fun. Yeah. Like you've heard, you have the receipts for your work. It's not like you yeah, just did totally. the doc. Yeah. Um, so, but afterwards, and you mentioned your foundation and I saw how much money you give away and, and how philanthropic you are. I assume your life changed a bit monetarily after the film and um, where you had the potential possibilities to do all these things and to give back and you know more access to be able to impact more is that fair to say that all that started to change quite a bit after the film yeah for sure the film just opened up a whole new world in terms of finances and everything just being able to do corporate speaking and different endorsement things and you know like two years ago or a year or two ago i did like a chinese cell phone commercial you know like some random thing that like comes from my agent and you're like never heard of the company don't know anything about it but it like pays more than than climbing sponsorship has like my whole freaking life basically you know yeah. <laughs> you're like you can like sum all the money that i've earned from climbing stuff and you're like oh that uses one chinese cell phone commercial yeah you're like cool yeah like, I'm gonna, you know and yeah. especially because so much of that money winds up going to charity anyway i'm like this is awesome like i'll, I'll take all the opportunities i can you know? yep no that's very cool and i know exactly the deals you're talking about um we've done them too they're like these companies that are massive that you never would have heard of yeah, it was um, the, the fifth largest cell phone manufacturer in the world. And I'm kind of like, how have I never even heard of the fifth largest cell phone manufacturer in the world? But, yeah, exactly. It's you know, crazy. I know. Um, it's like, you know, odd digress fact here, but it's like I saw someone say once, just it's like twice the amount of people watch the NBA in China, you know, just to think about it from that standpoint. So there's like an entire world, of, maybe not anymore, but there's an entire world of like, business and ancillary things that have come of the sport that like no one's familiar with here that's how crazy sort of. all that business is who are some of the people like that you look up to like in this kind of rarefied air and i, and I mean that in like people that have gotten to this like highest level at what they do no matter what it is are there other people that have inspired you or that have become mentors in some way 
Uh, not like mentors. I mean, so in the climbing world, I draw inspiration from tons of other, you know, both contemporary and, and past climbers. Um, and you can kind of cherry pick all the best parts of like different climbers, like, oh, you know, I'm so inspired by it, by this person's dedication, but that person's work ethic, whatever. Um, but in like the broader sports world, I kind of just, I like seeing mastery, you know, I like seeing excellence. Like I'm the guy that always roots for the winning team, you know, cause I want to see a team dominate. Cause I want somebody like, basically I want to see like greatness. Like I want to see somebody go out and just destroy it at the sport. And so, you know, like I'm, I'm like a Tom Brady fan, let's say, you know, maybe not like personally, but I just love seeing him perform at such a high level for so long, you know, like such dominance. You're like, Oh, that's great. Yeah. I like seeing Ron play basketball or I should say Kevin Durant too, you know, but, but um, both, you know, it's like, but basically seeing any, anytime I see greatness, I'm like, I think that's, I find that yep. inspiring. That's the same exact shit that Kevin says. And it's why I think you could relate to why so many of these guys join up to play with each other because mm -hmm. It's about playing with the best at the very, very highest level and then feeling like you're still performing at your very best. You know, totally. for, for everything everyone said about the Warriors and Kevin joining the team, it's like, well, when the best talent was put on display and you performed the very best of that at that level, that's, mm -hmm. a, cha that's a challenge. You know, that's actually okay. a challenge. Um, and, it's, and it's an opportunity to draw the best out of yourself. You know what I mean? Like when you get to play with the best people, presumably it's going to help you be your best player. And I mean, at least for climbing, like that's the real satisfaction is finding out like what you can do. You know, it's like, what's the best that I can do. And if I surround myself by great people, then I get to find my own limits better. Yep. You know, and that's kind of the aspiration. I think. How evolved have the analytics like become or the technology around climbing at all? Oh, it's, it's so, yeah. let's say it's nascent, you know, it's like just starting and it's uh, <laughs> very crude compared to other sports. Um, like through, through some of the events that I've done post free solo, I met a handful of NFL players and talked to them about like sort of diet and coaching and like the camps and all the things that they go through. And I was like, dude, that's crazy. It's like, they're a piece of meat that's just being like worked on by a team to like make them in a, a high performance piece of meat. You know, I was like, man, climbing is just not there yet. Like, yeah. you know, partially because it's a smaller industry. So there's no money in it for like, you can't hire the dietitian and the trainer and the strength coach and the, you know, body worker and like all the people that like help you perform at your best. Like that just doesn't exist for climbing. Yeah. Does that interest you? I mean, if, you know, if I see you at an Andreessen conference, I assume you're now surrounded by some of these incredible minds. Um, like does that side of the business or finding a way to build within that side of the business interest you at all? I mean, it, it interests me a little bit, um, not so much building as a business, but like now that I have the means, like I get body work once a week, you know, and I try to eat a little bit better and things like that. It's like basically I'm willing to sort of invest in myself as an athlete, like to just try to make sure that, you know, I stay healthy as long as possible, things like that. And I think that climbing as a sport will continue to, to change in that way as well. You know, like with climbing going to the Olympics, I'm sure that the U.S., Olympic athletes will get like better endorsement deals from like visa or something, you know, and be able to like hire coaches and trainers and, and masseuses and things like that. And hopefully that stuff will like trickle down into the rest of the climbing world more, but, uh, you know, we'll see though. What are they going to compete on? Like indoor rock climbing at the Olympics yeah. or outdoor? Yeah. The Olympic format is a combination of the, the three world cup disciplines. Like right now there's a world cup series that, um, that does speed climbing, uh, bouldering and difficulty, like basically climbing with a rope on difficult walls. And so the Olympic format combines all three of those because it's an exhibition sport. So they only get one medal. So they just rolled all three disciplines in one thing to get, to get one combined medal. Could you get the gold easily if you wanted? No, no, not even close. No, it's funny because, um, it'd be like asking a 35 year old marathon runner if they could beat Usain Bolt at his peak, you know, you're like, well, no, obviously not. Cause it's like physiologically different sports. It's like different things going on. And like what I'm mostly doing as a climber is like ultra endurance type of things, you know, like huge walls and whatever. And what they're doing in the Olympics is like, you know, the relatively short walls. I mean, what they're doing is incredibly hard, but it's like a totally different scale. Yeah. You know, it's like a different, different sport, basically. Do they have, they have ropes though. Yeah, they have ropes. It's all safe. It's all controlled. It's indoors, but, um, but it's incredibly difficult and incredibly athletic. Weird question though. Do you have life insurance? No. You can't get life insurance, right? I think insurance is a bit of a scam anyway, you know, because it's like <laughs> it's designed for the company to make money. It's like it's not in your best interest necessarily. Uh, well, life insurance, no, it's in the people you're. <laughs> I, talk, yeah. I, I just I want to circle back to something you said, because I just feel like it's so profound. Like 
when you said that a goal of yours is not necessarily to reach the top, but it's the control over the fear and the emotion. I think mm. that's just so dope. Like you're in the middle of doing something so difficult and like it, the essence of sports is winning and your goal is to win, but to really control the feeling you're having while you're in the middle of it. Well, I wonder, I mean, if you ask great NBA players, I wonder if their goal is to win or if their goal is to go out there and do the best on the court, you know, to like feel flow, basically, to feel like they're just controlling the ball and like passing perfectly and like dunking it over. You know, I don't, you know, I don't know. No. What it feels like yeah, but like but, making the best play. No, but also I yeah. think it's, I think it's, I think it's not just making the best play. It's the journey, right? So like when I, a lot of players will tell you that after they win a championship, there's this feeling of a, almost excitement but like an emptiness because the journey um and the preparation and the work and the practice all of that i think you know starts to become the excitement is that but what do they say what do they say before do they say i'm enjoying the journey or i want to win the chip they say before they want to win the chip but i mean like any entrepreneur has said on our show too like they like the rise they like the journey they like you know and like we feel in here you know the wins are cool but you just kind of you can't you can't I also wonder if part of that is an age thing, because like if you'd ask 24 year old me like what the point was, I would just say to send the NAR, which is kind of climbing speak for like doing rad things and like achieving greatness or whatever. But so much of that's because I'm a young 20 year old that's like trying to get laid and like trying to find a girlfriend and just like just wants to be noticed and like do something cool. And I kind of wonder if you ask like a young NBA player, they're like, yeah, I want to win. I want to dominate. I want, you know, I want to do something great. But then as you ask older players, if they're just like, I want to go out and have and like experience moments of greatness on the court and like, you know, experience flow, like feel proud of the way I played, support my team, things like that. You know, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, I've been doing this 25 years now. It's like, obviously motivations kind of change over time. And I think that the embrace of the process is like a natural thing that happens as you get older, you know, yeah. mostly because, you know, when you achieve like greatness a bunch of times in a row, you're kind of like, Oh, it turns out that that's actually not the thing that you want. The thing that you want is the, is the working toward the greatness. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, that's that's why you see so many players like also like double down even after so much success. LeBron, I, I heard Kyrie say it in training camp uh, about honing their craft and just like being the best totally. possible version of themselves. You know, at that point, totally. And and you kind of have to because realistically, if you like achieve your dream, you know, six years in a row, you're sort of like, what does that dream mean at this point? But like really your dream is to be the best player you can be and to like love the grind and like love improvement, you know, things like that. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, like, you know, you see the film Free Solo and, and realistically that'll probably be like a pinnacle of my career in some ways. But like leading up to that, I've done I've done something like 30 or 40 sort of unrepeated first free solos, like things that are sort of cutting edge in the sport that, that haven't ever been done. And, you know, each one of those is like achieving a dream. And at a certain point, you're like, huh, if the last 30 didn't like suddenly make me happy, it's not like the next one's going to make me happy either. You know, it's like maybe yeah. the real purpose is like the working towards these things and like yep. the enjoying the, the training, you know, enjoying the grind rather than like looking for the thing at the end. So now as, um, you know, as you go into this, like, how old are you, do you say? I'm 35. Oh, she's still very young. But how much longer do you want to do this? Like, will you climb the rest of your life? Yeah, I'll climb the rest of my life. And I think climbing has a lot more longevity than most sports because it's pretty low impact on your body. It's not like, you know, it's not like football, let's say, where you're getting hammered day in and day out. Um, you know, and, and climbing also has a really high degree of, of uh, sort of skill to it, like, you know, body movement. It's not just pure physicality. It's also like how you use your body. So I think that um, you can kind of extend your your shelf life longer than other sports. Let's say. So what are some of your um, what are some of the goals? Like, and not maybe not just climbing. Like goals for you professionally, and then I guess you know that'd be silly not to ask you about climbing. And then goals for you from a climbing perspective. Well, so from a climbing perspective, I kind of know that nothing I ever do will, will top free selling El Cap, at least for the public persona or public perception, but. In a way, that's kind of liberating because it means I get to do whatever I want. You know, I just do all the things that I like to do because either way, they're all going to look the same to everybody else. So, uh, so I've been working on a couple things around Red Rock, and like I said, I just fell down this mountainside and busted my face the other day. Uh, that's like working on this big traverse of a bunch of peaks. Um, you know, basically, I just have a bunch of like personal climbing goals that I'm like constantly chipping away at. Anything professionally, um, not climbing wise, that you're working on? Yeah, well, professionally, I mean, I've always been doing work through the Hanel Foundation, which um, has seen incredible growth since since Free Solo. I mean, um, 
you know, last year we gave away over a million dollars in grants, which is pretty cool to see that kind of impact around the world. It's just like nice to, to know that you're doing something useful in the world. Um, also, I mean, recently I launched this podcast, Climbing Gold, which um, is kind of like a limited release uh, run up to the Olympics sort of thing, kind of like state of, it's just like an interesting look at, at bridging where climbing has come from and where it's going as climbing has this interesting moment with the Olympics. Um, so, I mean, it's been fun to, and I'm supposed to be doing commentary at the Olympics, uh, which I don't know anything about. So it should be kind of fun. So like, I think that kind of, uh, you know, professional growth as it were, like, you know, it's weird to call it that, but like taking on interesting new projects like that, it's, it's fun for me because I love climbing and I'm very excited to watch competitors, you know, perform at an elite level at the Olympics. And so to be able to like shape the public perception of it in some way, you know, get to talk about it and help explain it to people. I'm like, I'm into that. I think it'd be fun. Yeah, I, mean, no, I it, think that, that's what we're trying to do through climbing gold, you know, like make sure that people who are interested in the sport have some understanding of where it's come from. Yep. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, with this platform, you know, you have this incredible opportunity to carry your sport with you as well as help people and impact people's lives. And, you know, I think you speaking about it, especially in a forum like the Olympics, the mentality that they have, whether you know the sport as intricately as you know yours, is going to be something that like the audience will want to hear, you know, and that mentality of someone that's a climber is something that you've now achieved on the highest level. Um, so your organization does what exactly before we let you go? So the Hanoff Nation supports solar projects uh, for a more equitable world. So basically just support solar around the world, uh, anything that kind of helps human communities in different places. Um, I mean, it's just, it's just what it's like, it's a kind of a long story, but it's kind of an outgrowth from like different climate expeditions I've been on and just seeing, uh, you know, need around the world and just realizing that energy access is kind of like a foundational uh place to help help human communities um yeah so i mean we uh, you know i've been doing work through the foundation for i don't know maybe eight or nine years now and so it's been it's been great to see that we're able to do so much more now as a result of stuff like Brusola. nice so do you ever come to new york ever come to the east coast well, I've been to New York a lot during the free solo tour, just for all the media stuff. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but I try to never go there. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's no mountains like Mount Washington, or is that, that's not big enough over here in New Hampshire? No, they're, um, they're the Schwanguns, like a big climbing area outside of uh, New Paltz, it's like a couple hours out of town, and that is a historic and sort of significant climbing area, but uh, not so exciting that I'm willing to go all the way to New York, basically. All right. Well, if you do. Maybe this could be exciting. Maybe me and Johnny come. We'll wear ropes, but we'll come with you. Like, let's do a small mountain. Dude, if I was in New York, I would actually, you know, though, for real, if uh, if I'm in New York, there actually is climbing in Central Park. And if you guys were interested, I would take you to the boulders. Oh, hell yeah. We out. Yes. That? He says we go. out. He wants to do it. I want to do yeah, it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm down. If I'm in New York, I'll take you guys bouldering in Central Park. It's pretty chill. It's a really accessible way to like give it a try and play around. But oh, actually, a few, uh, a few like elite climbers have started climbing there, which is kind of funny, but it just goes to show that access is such an important part of climbing. Like if there are rocks near lots of people, then more people get into climbing. You know, yep. it's like, it's, it's that simple. That's true. I knew so some kids. Is, is quite a resource, actually. I knew some kids, uh, two kids growing up that could scale buildings, but totally different. They could get up like well, a few flights. <laughs> I do want to ask you that, though. Is there a huge difference between scaling a building and scaling a rock wall? No, it's the same thing. Of course, it's different, man. No, no, actually, I, I was going to say, no, it is the same. Principle. Oh, shoot. Like, you win. Like, the movement is the same. But surprisingly, buildings isolate your muscles in, like, the thing about rock is that it's super varied movement. So, like, your grips are constantly changing. But the thing with buildings, it's exactly the same the whole time. And it actually kind of, like, hammers your muscles the way that, like, working out in a gym would, like, in a, in a weightlifting gym, because you're using the exact same things over and over. And so... Right. I've, I've climbed a handful of buildings and uh, I'm always sort of surprised by how physical it can be in certain ways. Cause you know, I'm used to climbing like walls that are thousands of feet high, but the movement's so varied that it distributes the wear everywhere. But buildings, you go a little ways and you're like, I'm starting to get tired. And you're like, uh Oh, cause you know, you're, you're <laughs> like a long ways to go. It's, uh, so, it's, it's interesting. Gee, I'm going to do 20 push-ups. I'm going to start doing push-ups If I get, if I get it wrong, what you say on the call. All right. So 20 push-ups right Let's after this it. podcast. Um, all right, man. Well, Alex, thank you so much. This is uh, this is dope. This is dope. I really, I, I hope you. Fire. I know. I hope you come this way because that would be a lot of fun. I, you guys, I, I don't have much confidence that I can climb very high right now, but. But thankfully, the rocks in uh, Central Park aren't that high, so it'll be right. perfect for you to try. 
All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. And um, this is, you know, it's inspiring. Like you said, it's inspiring to talk to people that have done something at such an elite level. And man, keep it up. And if you're ever here, let us know. We'll speak to you soon. I appreciate you. I will. No, I appreciate you guys having me. It's it's a, always a pleasure to talk about sports and sort of the broader context like that. It's like, it's a, yeah, it's really fun for me to chat as well. So Gianni, true to form. That was, uh, that was one for the books, man. Mm-hmm. Super fire. Uh, definitely very unique. This was, this was not our typical interview, but uh, as always, we learned a lot. So please go subscribe download come listen to out of office man we've done 36 podcasts we're very proud of getting a lot of support please keep listening keep supporting we appreciate everyone and uh, we're going to keep doing this because uh, we enjoy ourselves and we learn every single time so uh, check you guys later see you next week peace peace